Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Teach Me to Talk with Laura and Kate. I'm Laura Mize, pediatric speech-language pathologist. And I'm Kate Hensler, developmental interventionist with the First Steps program here in Louisville, Kentucky. My family's teasing me in the background, so if you can hear me <laughs> giggling, that would be why. <laughs> How are you, Laura? That's funny. I'm good. Are they going to sit and listen to you and tease you and taunt you the whole show? Yeah, no, because I'm going back in my bedroom where I don't have to look at them. I was going to, to say, perhaps you should leave the room. <laughs> I've already done that. <laughs> Have you had a good Father's Day at the Hensler house today? We've had a very good day. We went to a movie, which we almost never do anymore, and we went we out to eat. We hardly do that either. Oh, yeah. that's good. What food did you have? Mexican, did you say? Mexican food, which was Bill's choice. Uh-huh. Yeah. It was good. Well, we had Johnny's choice, too. He grilled out massive T-bones, and we had king crab legs, and then uh, my birthday was Friday, and so we're having, we had a German chocolate cake, my very favorite birthday cake, so we had to wait till our boys were home. They've been at a camping trip oh. all the most of the week, so we waited and had our double celebrations today, and it was a lot of fun. Oh, good. Oh, well, happy this sounds like a regular birthday. phone call instead of, oh, thank you. This sounds like a regular phone call instead of a show. We, we better remember... <laughs> Someone will probably listen to this, so we should get going on the show. Okay. <laughs> do you have any updates or important news for us today? I do want to remind anyone who's in Georgia or Tennessee or close that I'm going to be in Atlanta on Thursday, July 14th, and then in Memphis on Thursday, July 21st. And I'm so excited I got news that one of my favorite undergraduate uh, professors and perhaps another one, are coming to my conference in Memphis. And so that's exciting and nerve-wracking. Oh, my nerve God, that is exciting. Well, it's, I'm a little nervous. You know how <sighs> weird I get when I know a lot of people, and I haven't <laughs> seen them, you know, in 25 years, 20, however long it's been. And so well, I've actually seen them since then, but I haven't, you know, sat in their classroom. So that will be Well, now they're going to sit in your classroom flattering. and they'll get to marvel at what a great <laughs> job they did with you. So that will be a win-win. <laughs> but it's, it's, it's pretty exciting. That's, that's kind of a bucket list thing, so I'm so excited about that. And then I'm supposed to announce that we are still looking at dates in West Virginia, hopefully um, end of August or in September that we've had some hotel issues in West Virginia. So if there's a speech pathologist or a developmental interventionist or another early intervention professional listening from West Virginia and you have hotel suggestions for me, please email me at laura at teachmetotalk.com because we are having a difficult time finding a good location for there. So maybe Johnny and I are going to take a little road trip and just kind of check them out ourselves, so we'll see. Where are you trying to go in West Virginia, Laura? Uh, I think we're going to do, I don't know if we're going to do a, one central event or try to do two events, one more central and then one more toward Morgantown. But we're uh, we're looking. So that's on the agenda for late summer, early fall. And so if anyone wants to help me out there with West Virginia, that would be great. All right, let's get, that, those are all my announcements. Do you have any announcements, Kate? I do not. I would like okay. to be paid for services rendered in the state of Kentucky. Let me just say that if anybody <laughs> from the state happens to be listening to this podcast. I continue oh, to have lots of insurance problems, yes. It, oh, oh, gosh, don't even, I don't even need to get started on that. That'll, that would be the whole hour. And I'm sure we have other therapists that feel the same way. I, I saw one of our OT friends in uh, Kroger the other day when my parents were here, and we stood there, and I bet I talked to her 10 minutes about that and then finally realized my parents had checked out and we were ready to go. Oh, uh, yeah. But, yeah, that's a, payment is kind of an issue in Kentucky right now. So. Other I'm than sure that, no everywhere. Okay. All right, well, let's pick up where we left off last week. The title of today's show is Doing Therapy with Overstimulated Toddlers. And if you've worked for more than a week or two, you've probably 
run into this situation where you know that you've got a kid that's crying, not necessarily because he doesn't like you or want you to be there, but because he's overstimulated, he's overwhelmed. His little sensory system can't take all the additional input. And remember last week we started with, or at the very end of the show, read the question and then kind of talked about a couple of things, but we want to pick up where we left off. And I think I should reread the question, don't you, Kate, for anyone who didn't I, I listen I think I would benefit, week. so that, that stands as that question. <laughs> yes, let's reread the question. There have been a lot of things been, that have happened. It's been a week, Laura. Let's, let's read the question again. No, I do. Okay. People didn't hear last week, they should hear it. Yeah, that's right. Okay, she's, this is someone who came to my conference when I was in the Nashville area, when I was in Franklin. Uh, last month, and she says, I, uh, and so she's writing me to kind of pick my brain about ideas for hard kids. And I love it when therapists do that, and I especially love when I remember the therapist because I can put a face of the name, and I remember this person. She sat right up front, and we talked during the breaks and talked at the end, and she was so nice. So I, I'm so always so flattered when somebody wants to get our opinions on this and we and anybody again who's listened to the show more than one time knows that we love to problem solve and kind of tease things out and talk about different things we would try so that's what this question is about she says i have a very difficult child on my caseload right now and i left your conference feeling empowered with wonderful new things to try with him specifically i was reminded of the importance of social games and interaction prior to communication i wrote down a new lesson plan and i was excited to try new things with him However, I am hitting a wall with this kiddo. He cries for the entire session, and it doesn't seem like an I'm a, I am mad cry. It truly is an I am really overwhelmed cry. Does that make sense? He isn't crying to try to get out of interacting with me. I truly feel like he's crying because he simply cannot handle me being in his face, singing and playing fun games in an attempt to get him to engage with me. In our first session, I had out the farm talk farm toys when I put the cow up to my face and said moo he started crying it was really sad if we were playing with a toy and I do something loud with my voice like up 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 or one two three go he starts crying she says he's 20 months old his only vocalizations are mm and crying <laughs> and then she said he does not put his hands together for any reason so she's backed off trying to get him to sign and in the conference I talk a lot about that and we've certainly talked about that on the show if you know, more, teaching a kid to sign more is usually one of our first goals that we do with our language-delayed babies. But one of the prerequisites is that you, uh, the baby has to already be using his hands at midline, either banging toys together or clapping or doing something functional so that you'll know that that's a motor movement he can perform. And she said he's not doing that, so she's she's put that on that goal or that sign on hold for now. She goes on to say he puts everything in his mouth. We're trying to make the sessions very fun and engaging, but he is completely overwhelmed. What do I do with a kid that I believe may be very sensitive to sounds and other stimuli? I've recommended that they see an OT, but that won't change the fact that he is very delayed in his language skills. I just don't know what else to try. He just cries and cries. At the end of the session, he will come and cuddle with me, and he stops crying. It's really sweet, and it does let me know that he doesn't hate me. And she said, any thoughts? It's just so hard to push him out of his comfort zone because he gets so sad. Do I keep pushing, or again, do you have other thoughts? And I thought this was a great question and we both talked about last week that we have seen children like this in the past haven't we absolutely they're not easy kids they're, they're the ones not we really easy. earn our money on yeah yeah <laughs> you're kind of stuck on that payment thing today aren't you <laughs> well you know i mean when we start with kids if they're hard you feel like yeah. an hour can seem like an eternity and then once you get them moving along an hour flies by, so I'm sure she's checking her watch about every 10 minutes thinking, how much longer? Well, and if she has any auditory sensitivities like I do, crying to me is like most of the time like hearing fingernails go down a chalkboard. I mean, I really do not like the sound of crying babies. It sends off the fight-or-flight reaction in me with... Oh no! I gotta get this kid happy. I gotta get this kid calm. I gotta do something else. This is not working. So when you have an adult who feels like that, and obviously a toddler who feels totally out of control, that can make for a really um, tough session. I think she's in a clinical setting. 
I think that she has a clinic, and it's um, so the little boy is coming to see her. And I could be remembering the details wrong, but I'm pretty sure that um, that she has a clinic. So he's not on his own home turf. So he's naturally going to be a little well. For his temperament and for his sensory system, it sounds like he is unsettled from the get-go. So being in a, again in a new environment is probably one piece of the puzzle. But that's not to say that she's going to have him stop coming for sessions because he's certainly not going to get better with no therapy. She did say that she's recommended OT, but it doesn't sound like that's a given, that he may or may not um, get that. I think Tennessee has a different kind of setup than we do, so kids don't automatically um, kind of come in with that, with with maybe a full assessment by one person who recommended lots of different or any kind of therapy that they might need. I think that they're kind of a one-stop shop at the beginning. If you have a speech delay, you just get a speech assessment and don't necessarily get an OT eval, which I think a lot of – a kid like this would certainly have a recommendation for an OT eval, I, I think, don't you, Kate, in Louisville yeah, in our yeah, area? probably so. Uh-huh. Yeah. I think so, too, unless he was just really laid back and did none of those things that, that demonstrate his oversensitivity during um, the avowal, that could have happened, but a kid like this, we probably would have been working with an OT from the very beginning. So I'm so glad that she's recognized that. But she's right, getting an OT doesn't mean that she's going, that they're going to see instant success and he's never going to cry with her again. So she needs some treatment strategies and some ideas so that she can help him regulate. And, and really that's the problem. He is... He's not regulated. He he has that sensory processing uh, difference or disorder, and he certainly is overly sensitive at, uh, to sounds because she said it's happening when she's singing and it's happening when she's loud, and I'm sure she's trying to do those things in an attempt to get him to look at her, to smile at her, to want to participate with her. It sounds like that after the conference she realized, gosh, he's not very socially connected to me, so I need to get that piece going before we can really move forward with helping him understand words and certainly before he starts to use words. Um, And because he's not putting his hands together at midline, that makes me think he's probably globally delayed. Did you get that impression too? Yeah, that's pretty darn old to not get his hands together at midline 20 months. I mean, that's... Yeah. yeah, usually that, babies are doing that crazy. by seven or eight months. I mean, kind of on the lower end. A lot of kids, a lot of typically developing babies are holding the rattle at midline at, or the toy or whatever at, gosh, three, four months, don't you think? Yeah. And so he's certainly got some... Again, yeah. Yeah, he's mm-hmm. certainly got some other issues that an occupational therapist is going to want to look at as well. Um, and so it's more than just kind of... It's more than just a language delay going on here. And bottom line, she's going to have to modify what she's doing so that she can get him regulated and um, calm enough so that he's going to be able to participate with her. And I applaud her efforts with being really fun and really playful. But for a kid like that she's probably going to have to work her way up to that since diving right in, as you and I would both be inclined to do, mm-hmm. <laughs> doesn't sound like it's been as successful. So um, when I have a kid like that, when a kid is really crying and I'm linking it to when I'm loud or if I'm, um, if it always seems to happen when I sing, I really try to modify that so that I'm not, I'm still fun and still playful and still doing all those things, but I back off just a teeny bit on specifically what it is that that is causing that overreaction, which is what she's saying when he's crying. 
another helpful thing, that, and that's not to say that she's not ever going to sing with him. She just might have to get his little body ready first and do some other things first before she breaks into her social games and her her singing and anything that um, might be startling to his system. And, and we know from our studies with um, sensory issues that deep pressure or gentle movements like swinging are the very best ways to kind of help the kid calm down um, overall. And our OT friend Carrie always reminds me that body-on-body contact is particularly soothing and calming for lots of these kids. So that's why we do some of those social games and routines with kids in our labs, like ride a little horsey and row row your boat because they're sitting close to us. They're already in that close proximity. And if she knows that it scares the heck out of him or sets him off or whatever you want to call it for her singing loudly, I might not even sing when I first started doing those routines with him. I might just bounce him on my lap a little bit. And if he didn't like the bouncing, I would try the rocking with the rowing. And she might try to hum a little bit. He's got a mmm, so he might join in that humming with her. Um, something she said made me think that he might be doing the mmm as kind of a self-stimulatory thing. But I, as I reread the question, maybe not. I guess I just sort of read between the lines. Haven't you had kids that have done that, Kate, use the mmm as kind of their way to to block everything else out and to kind of help them regulate? We have. I have. We had a little girl years and years and years and years ago that you pointed out. Well, that's um, she's being preservative with that, and I was like, oh, that was one of my early, early larvae lessons, and I've never forgotten it. It didn't. It wasn't obvious to me, but I was really green and really um, a novice, and so you pointed out, and then after that, it seemed obvious. But yes. To answer your question, I have, and we've even shared at least one, maybe two. I think we've, I'm thinking of tool boys that we've seen. I wish that I could say their, I wish I could just kind of email you their names right quick. I I could get them. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, they're both on the spectrum, and they both kind of did that. One little boy was at daycare, and he did it a lot at his first daycare setting, but it was his first time to be out of his home and away from, you know, kind of into a child care situation, and he was totally overwhelmed a lot of the day, and he spent lots of time alternating between mmm and crying. Um, And then after he adjusted, and especially after they moved into a new uh, preschool setting, that's when he really, really took off and he stopped all that, although he did get better at that at the first one. But he did that his mmm, again, is a way to kind of help himself feel better, block out the external uh, distractors or even assaults on his little environment or his little body. And so it could be that that little boy is using mmm in that way. We don't know that he's using it functionally like a mmm, like something's good. It sounded to me like it was more self-stimulatory. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And a lot of people kind of miss that. They'll think a mom might say, well, he really likes to sing. And I'll say, what do you mean by that? You know, is he singing full-blown words? Is he? And then I'll realize that they're talking about humming. And then I realize that, gosh, that's not even really humming. That's not even really that musical. He's just kind of using that sound, again, as a way to help him feel better because he's either blocking out other things or, you know, who knows, there could be other other reasons that he's doing it. When you read about children with autism and children with pretty significant sensory processing issues, sometimes they say their internal noise is so um, even overwhelming to them that even even external things aren't what kind of causing that overstimulation. It's everything going on internally because of the way that they're processing incoming information. And, again, we know that, that those kinds of kids don't process what they hear, what they see, what they smell, what they feel, how they move in the same kinds of way that children do when they're typically developing. And that's kind of the root of the whole problem. And especially for a little guy, and we talked about this last week, who we know has some auditory sensitivities, well, no wonder he hasn't learned how to understand and use words yet because 
sounds aren't meaningful yet. Sounds are kind of set him off. They're he again. They're they're aversive to him on on some level on some different things. So so language is not um, functional for him yet. So again, that's probably the reason that he's not talking. But this is just conjecture on our part. We we don't know because we haven't seen this little boy. We're just making assumptions based on our previous experience with other kids. So. We're making sure that we're going to give this therapist, you know, we're doing a lot of background talking, but I want her to really be able to listen to the show and come up with some very practical things that she can do in treatment. And we've already said that when we have criers like this and we know that it's the way that we're talking to them or singing to them that set set them off, we know that we have to modify that a little bit because you really can't expect to keep doing the same thing and have it get better. Sometimes it does just because you, you know, they adapt to your routines and they adapt to your singing. But most of the time, I try to change it in some kind of way so that it's not quite as loud. And again, I'm still right there, still trying to accomplish the same things, but maybe not in a way that's quite uh, coming on quite as strong and overwhelming him quite as much as. Um, as it was in the beginning. And the social games, I think using the body-on-body contact and using kind of that close proximity, that will probably work great for him because she says that by the end he likes to sit with her and cuddle. So if he likes that at the end, I would probably try more of that at the beginning, wouldn't you? Yes. I would really try and back off of so much. As much as those are great with these really, 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 really sensitive kids, and he's also at a pretty difficult age. Twenty months isn't exactly easy for a lot of kids, let alone a child who has this many sensory apparent sensory issues. So, use the touch and use the visual, but back off on the overwhelming him auditorily. Yeah, and I think that you can do a lot of things to engage kids. Um, and still work on that engagement piece without over talking. And and there have been children that just your your voice alone, not even when you're doing the up 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 wee or any kind of singing or anything. Sometimes just talking is is so overstimulating. And and we can't not talk when we're there to do speech therapy, but we can certainly talk less. We can simplify so that we're using mostly play sounds or those exclamatory words that we talk about week after week and so that we're, um, again, really, really not overwhelming those little auditory um, systems. And if he, if I had a kid like this who got better at engaging with me when we're just rocking or maybe swinging in lycra or if he would sit in a beanbag chair and kind of be cuddled up there. I used that a lot when we had our playgroup program with kids who were pretty overwhelmed by noise. They seemed to calm down when their little bodies were calmer and they had a that little cocoon-like um, seating system so that they could sit. I would do everything I could to get him to engage with me in those quieter, calmer um, more sensitive situations first and help him get really regulated like that. Now, some kids, if he doesn't want to cuddle with her at the beginning, he might need a fair amount of movement to regulate before he could even get to the point where he might let her touch him. So for those kids, I do... Um, chasing games or jumping. I don't know if she has access to one of those mini little trampolines. Haven't you used that before with kids, Kate? You let them jump and let them run and, or get them to march, that marching, marching, marching game. Absolutely. It's to, yeah, it's a good way to help them kind of get those little bodies uh, regulated. What other things have I not mentioned, Kate, that would be a good kind of movement activity that she could use at the beginning that's not going to overwhelm him with too much language and with too much woohoo right off the bat since he reacts so negatively to that? Hmm. Johnny's sitting over here saying, ride a little horsey, already said that. 
Yeah, I would I would probably do something more where she's either the swinging and the lycra, or even if she has to kind of load them up in her arms. Sometimes I'll swing a kid like a baby who's not a baby because, uh-huh. again, you're giving them lots of deep pressure and you're kind of, you know, grabbing them real tight. Yeah. So many of those kids seem to just really come together when you tr- when you hold them like that. Because um, you're squishing them. Because you're squishing them. They really love to be squished. <laughs> Why? Wishing, I'm not I mean, even, sure, but they love it. Yeah. Well, and even think about how, when, when, what do adults pay sometimes hundreds of dollars <laughs> for? Is massage for? Yep. I don't know what you were thinking when I said that, but for, <laughs> you know, to for someone else to squish their body like that, that massage, that calming, gentle relaxation, and he might be a little sensitive to touch if she tries something like tickles or if she tries something that light touch and we've talked a lot about how calming that firmer deep pressure is and certainly by adding that rhythmical movement piece to that with swinging him Um, and she might be able to swing him without singing or doing anything at first and then once he likes it add a little hum or add a little little song even if she's not using words just a little you know, da, 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 da. I had a little guy that um, I show in the conference footage that was diagnosed um, on the spectrum, and he, he liked to dance with me uh, the very first few sessions, but not to regular music. It was just to me kind of coming up with one single syllable and holding his hands and standing right in front of him and doing kind of a you know, kind of a Frankensteinish movement where I put we put all our weight on one foot and then all our weight on the other foot and then, you know, kind of back like that. Sometimes he stood on my feet to do it, but that was a great way to engage him. And he was a kid that would certainly become overwhelmed sometimes the second I got too loud or too playful too quickly in a session. I mean, I almost always had to kind of build up to that um, so that you're – you're working in and I think sometimes people might not think about that with kids because every week Kate we talk about again being fun and over the top and animated but some kids can't do that yet and you've got to really work work your way up so that they are totally comfortable with you and again you get their bodies in a better place um, so that they can tolerate those kinds of things first Running is really, like we were talking about before, it is really some kids um, calm down after they run. He might not be a kid that would like that at the beginning. Even doing something like where you're doing Ring Around the Rosies and you're maybe not even singing that, but you're going around in circles and then just plop down on the floor, he might really like that. She's just going to have to kind of try different things where she's connected to him, where she's touching him, holding him, bouncing him, swinging him, rocking him, um, without as much auditory stuff, and really work on building that connection and then adding in her vocal piece after she feels like she's gotten him in a good place. Don't you think? I do. I would also probably do a little bit more. um, I mean, we don't know, you know, much about this little guy just, kind of where where he's right she's struggling with him at this point but i will say this with these kids that are obviously very 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 sensitive sometimes i do spend some time trying to figure out what they like visually and kind of uh-huh. using that as a way to connect with them usually it's, in. It's, yeah. yeah usually it's going to be something you know i hate to say it but something that spins or something that goes around yeah. and around or something because you know, these kids who are so sensitive with sensory issues, oftentimes they are really visual and they, they kind of get a thrill from those kinds of visual movements in front of their faces. And so right. who knows what it might be. Um, Let's give her some wheel, ideas. What are uh, some bubbles, your, yeah. um, mm-hmm. maybe even balloons. I wouldn't necessarily right. let them fly, but, you know. <laughs> Um, yeah, don't blow it up and then let it go with that big noise. That'll yeah, probably... I've freaked out more than one <laughs> child with that Me approach. Too. But sometimes just um, playing, you know, they seem to like that. Let let them touch the balloons. Um, right. Let them, I like my 
let them fall on their heads. I, for some reason, so many kids love that. Um, trying to think what else. Maybe even just, you know, simply stacking blocks, uh, helping him to push them down. Uh, you know, all the time I'm doing any of those simple kind of early play um, trying to engage with them. I'm I'm right there. I'm right with them. I'm trying to touch them as much as right. I can. I've got my face right down by their face because I want it to be not just a way to engage a child but to a way to kind of forge some kind of social connection with them. Right, yeah, that emotional so, connection. Right, and and you really kind of have to force that with kids a lot of times early on, particularly when they haven't had therapy and, you know, you've got a lot of ground to cover as far as development. So I definitely use some toys. Simple, The simpler the better, the more sometimes things that have, you know, when the blocks fall, that's your opportunity to share a glance and, and a look of excitement and see if he doesn't look at you is that, you know, you're kind of building some kind of right. um, social reciprocity or joint attention or I'm guessing those things are weak for him as well just based on right. what she's told us about him. Do we know that? No, but sure wouldn't surprise me. Most of the kids right. who present the way he sounds like he does, I kind of look for those things to be weak and right. look for opportunities to, you know, enhance those things. So sometimes a cool toy shared is a good way to work towards kind of the social connection she needs with him so that he can... Go ahead. Oh, no, you go ahead. Oh, I was just so that, that he can tolerate a little bit more of her voice, a little bit more of her touch, a little bit more of, right. you know, we don't know if she walked in and held him, what's he going to do? He might tolerate it great if she does it in the right way, or even if she does it in the best possible way, he still may bristle because... Right, but know. if they've got a toy, it's a tool there, and it's a way to mm-hmm. kind of take some of that focus off. My guess is that once he's kind of going with the toy, she can be right there in his face, and she can hold him and do all those things, and it not be as overstimulating to him because his attention is focused on something else. Which There's is a how chapter. I use, yeah. Yeah, yeah, me too. And there's a chapter in Teach Me to Play With You that talks about lots using lots of those really early things and those really simple toys. My other thought with him is that I would guess that because his language is so delayed that his cognition is probably delayed too. So she needs to be looking at toys that are pretty simple with cause and effect and even um, looking at those really... Um, early uh, kinds of toys like our Peaks Clown from Discovery Toys that you push one button and Peaks pops up. Now that sound might be when the the surprise of the the clown popping out of the box might be too much for him the first 30 seconds of therapy. <laughs> I thought but you were going to say the first session, 30 times. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, that too. Maybe but you know she too. may have to yeah, but she may have to kind of work up to that, too. Um, the, and, again, she might have to really look at what toys she's using to be sure that those sounds don't set him off as well. Some kids are scared of that little twirly racetrack, that Fisher-Price Spiral Speedway. And for those kids, um, I have one that works with sound and one that the batteries don't work anymore and I haven't replaced them so that we can just do the cars without the you know. Don't have to, yeah. Kind of I've had a number of kids who don't like the motor sound on it. Yeah. He, so he, he might to, be one because noises get him. We know that about this little guy. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. And she could probably ask mom about what kinds of environmental noises bother him. And you commented last week when we introduced this question that he might be a kid that's scared of the vacuum cleaner or scared of the garbage disposal or freaks out a little bit if he hears fire truck or any number of kind of environmental things, too. And so she can talk with mom about that. Some occupational therapists will will think that listening, the listening program and listening therapy um, would be a good treatment modality for them to use. Um, I don't do listening therapy. I think that for some kids I've seen it work, uh, or anecdotally anyway, we think it's probably one piece in the puzzle that's helped them really get better. I've seen children who we don't think have responded to it at all. I've seen children that... Mom couldn't really do listening therapy or even their OTs couldn't do it because I couldn't get the darn headphones. 
on the kid so that he could really even tolerate that. And so, you know, there would be some work to do before um, before they could even do the protocols that, that might be suggested. But that's certainly something that an occupational therapist would uh, recommend. There are some speech pathologists that do listening therapy. And many years ago, I think that was more prevalent in our area anyway where we practice than it is now. Have you had a kid do listening therapy in a long time? I'm sorry. I was opening the door. It was squeaking. Have I had a kid do listening therapy? What? Have you had a kid on your caseload that's actively doing listening therapy lately? Not lately. Yeah, it's interesting you bring it up because for a while it really was in vogue. Everybody was uh, doing that. Yeah, it was. And I don't mean to step on any toes if there's some great therapist out there doing it because, as you say, as with all all therapies, sometimes it's very effective, sometimes it's not. But no, you haven't in a, quite a while had anybody mention it, talk about it, suggest it, recommend it. No, it must be kind of I don't know, harder to get or less available or less in vogue. And you know, as with everything, another five or ten years, it may be the go-to thing. But right now, yeah, I, I don't have any. And that's in our area too. Yeah, and two, I think it just kind of depends on your availability of training of your providers and who's doing it. And the people that were doing it before, I don't, I haven't worked with them in a long time. I think that they've moved on and are treating older older children. And certainly, um, when a child is a little older, they can understand that you're not going to kill them when you're putting the headphones on or, you know, understand that a little bit better, maybe even tolerate that a little better. So that might be one reason we're not seeing it with our babies as much as um, as much as we were anyway. Um, let's see. Let's make sure we've talked about. I know there's several other suggestions that I wanted to say. One other thing that I might try to do with him is figure out if snack time is regulating for him. And so when I could see that he would be about to go over the edge or about to cry or I can sense that he's getting a little more overstimulated, I would try um, having his mom bring a sippy cup or a cup of, my preference would be a cup with a straw and a cold drink so that he could suck and drink to help him re-regulate. I've had lots of kids that that's been pretty effective with. Crunchy and chewy snacks are also pretty darn regulating for lots of children uh, if he doesn't have any feeding issues. And therapists. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, me too. Boy, that cold Diet Coke from or Coke Zero from McDonald's, that's really good between lots of these kinds of kids for me and those salty French fries. Yeah. <laughs> but snack, certainly that's a really functional activity. And, again, we talk about how to use snacks with kids all the time. But from a regulatory perspective, doing some pretzels or some cheese balls or if he's a kid that likes sweeter things, some chewy fruit snacks, or if his mom is, um, you know, really wanting it to be healthier, you know, perhaps dried fruit or, or something that would he, that he would have to really chew because chewing and sucking, as we know from our OT friends, is really, really regulatory for, for uh, lots of little systems. And, again, I think the thing would be for her is to figure out his signal so that she's really trying to increase the time that he's not crying during the session. And if that takes a few weeks of her just trying different things, which it sounds like she's, you know, at this point ready for any idea, um, just to kind of back off what she's what she's tried in the past and kind of take a take a I'm gonna start over and treat him more like an O T would and work on his sensory regulation first before she introduced those language pieces. I think that that would um, that would be more helpful. If he li- if he has a pacifier and uses that at home and if that's calming for him, I would even have the pacifier as something that we might pop in for a few minutes, let him suck, 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 calm down, take it back out and start over. I'm sure there are therapists listening to this right now that are cringing. (laughs) I would suggest that you use a pacifier in that way. But sucking is very, very regulatory, especially for children with pretty significant sensory issues and pretty significant developmental delays. Even though he's 20 months chronologically, my guess is going to be he's way down 
perhaps even below, you know, probably right there at that six to nine month level. So that's still appropriate for him developmentally to calm in that way. So I would certainly, uh, I wouldn't introduce a pacifier to a kid that had never used a pacifier at 20 months. But I, if he, if that's one way that he regulates at home, that would certainly be an option for us in therapy. And again, not to have it every single minute of every single therapy session moving forward, but when she really, really needs it to help him regulate so that he's not crying the whole entire time. Um, any other ideas that you have for her, Kate? Hmm, I'm trying to think if they're pretty much gone through the obvious ones to me. I'm trying to think. Oh, one thing, and I don't know if you went on this specifically, but she may start off when she's doing, like, deep pressure kind of stuff. Haven't you had a lot of these kids who really love things with their feet? Um, Yeah. (laughs) Again, I don't always get it. I just know, you know, you get these kids and they won't let you touch them, but, man, if you'll mess with their feet, and by mess with their feet I mean, like, maybe – rubbing their feet to get one against the other, the bottom of their foot, or rubbing them on the floor, preferably a rug. Squeezing them. Squeezing their feet and working their way up. And she may be able to make some kind of a simple, simple little social game with that. But, again, she's got to keep it really low-key, you know, and very little verbal stuff to go with it or she's going to overwhelm them. But for some reason, a lot of kids really seem to, when I have, let me put back up. When I have troubles with a child that I'm overwhelming, they're they're very, very sensitive, they're, they won't let me touch them much, you know, I'm setting them off with my voice, kind of my go-to thing is, let's see how they like the feet. And so often <laughs> that, and I don't know what that is, maybe, you know, they're walking, they're used to sensation on their feet. He's not doing much with his hands. If you can't get him to midline, my guess is the reason right. is because he's really sensitive there, too. Really sensitive, yeah. yeah. A lot of times these kids, even though, like, their fine motor skills may be way delayed, a lot of times they walked early because they could tolerate the sensation on their feet, so they forget right. that crawl and they just get up and walk, you know. Uh-huh. Um, so, I, you know, just a little hint on there with her to, you know, see what you can do with his feet. Um, And that's a great idea. And there's a little routine that I use with that, and it's in Teach Me to Play With You. And I'm pretty sure she got that um, at the conference. We sold a lot of books in Tennessee. And um, there's a routine in the transition section that talks about that and talks about how to, you know, even with those kids, I don't do, like you said, a big song with that. I might just say squeeze and then, you know, squeeze their feet three or four times and then move up to their thigh or their calves, squeeze, and then squeeze their little thighs and then um, you start with their shoulders and then kind of work your way down to those little hands. And so there's some ideas about um, how to use that and, how, and different little suggestions for uh, ways that you do it. And kids usually, again, will tolerate that kind of thing after... They've moved their little bodies first. Isn't that when you normally use it with kids, Kate, after you've done some movement stuff and then they're kind of laying down on the floor when, they're, when they've gotten calmer? That's kind of when you go in for playing with their feet. You wouldn't just walk in and grab them right away and start that. No, yeah, I wouldn't. But I, the other time I use it is if I'm trying to engage them, whether it be with some kind of social thing, with a simple toy, you know, bubbles or whatever blocks and I had them for a minute or two and shoot they're they're trying to go gone. yeah I'll try and pull them back to me not literally but well okay both literally and yeah. literally <laughs> figuratively but um by that deep pressure and their feet happened to be there and it, I guess that's why years ago I discovered not only are they there those kids like that feet thing I mean a lot of times right. that's here you're doing everything you can do to get them socially and you're thinking well maybe a little success there and then you go for their feet, and all of a sudden they're looking at you, and they've got the little twinkle going, and you're thinking, you love the feet thing. So yeah. sometimes and you extend the amount of time I'm able to engage them or kind of get them to settle for a couple more minutes because, you know, we don't know what this guy's like during a session other than he cries. But oftentimes right. for kids who are 
pretty significantly delayed. Their attention span is very, very, very short, and you and don't want to chase it them does the whole sound time. Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and it does sound like he's trying to get away from her. Mm-hmm. So he probably is leaving um, as much as he could in a therapy room, you know, leaving that space and, um, you know, kind of walking away from her so she could do some things. I cl- like you were saying, I clap kids' feet, feet, feet <laughs> together and then maybe kick their legs a little bit. Um, and you could do a little song with that once he's able to tolerate, you know, clap, 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 kick, 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 clap, 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 kick, 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 kick. That might be something fun that she could try, and I've done that with a lot of kids too. That's how using our choo-choo song with feet, we do that a lot. With mm-hmm. um, I've used, you know, the your little here comes the choo-choo train a-chugging down the track. I do that with kids' legs and feet, and that might be a, a way to introduce singing if if he likes her doing the feet and likes her doing that that might be a song she could kind of work up to and in a way to kind of again engage him socially with a song once he's tolerating her singing a little bit better and sometimes it is the magic of pairing it with something that they like physically that makes it palatable to the kids you know if you just do the verbal stuff or the song or and and they're it's setting them off. The the movement is the calming thing. So, you know, it's, right. it's all trial and error. You know, I'm sure that if we yeah. saw this little boy, we'd spend some session sessions scratching our head and and backtracking and rethinking. Mm-hmm. And you know, mm-hmm. there some kids are harder than others, and he's obviously not an easy one. So. Well, and that's just part of the therapeutic process, and you can't always jump right into targeting receptive and expressive language on the first day with a lot of these kids. I mean, he's pretty significantly affected for him to have all of these sensory issues and the, the significant language issues that she describes and the significant motor um, coordination issue with not being able to imitate actions like putting your hands together to sign more. I mean, she's really got to start at the beginning for him. And so even though she feels like, man, he still needs language therapy because he's 20 months and he has zero words, yeah, but you've got to work up developmentally to get him there. So it's it's perfectly fine for her to take several sessions to figure out from a regulatory perspective what works for him so that he's able to get there with being able to tolerate some more traditional language kinds of activities with play because he's, I mean, right now she's getting nothing. All he's doing is crying the entire hour. Right. So it's perfectly fine that's what I like so much about the way you present your material at your trainings and all of your works is that you talk about the prerequisites for communication. And I think a lot of therapists don't ever go there. They just talk about... we're going to use ten signs, and he's going to have ten words. And this little guy, frankly, just probably isn't ready to communicate. He's, he's not ready any more than he's a six-month-old baby would be. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And so you have to meet him where he is and kind of work up to that point. And so she's got a lot of stuff that she can do before she's ever even able to think about him imitating a word or pointing to a picture or anything like that because he's he's developmentally not there yet. And, again, she hasn't said where he tested, but my guess is he's at about six months. What would you think? I would guess, if, yeah, six pretty, pretty low. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Pretty, pretty low. low, yeah. And so that can be start difficult. Off. I think it's particularly difficult for younger, newer therapists, maybe therapists who haven't worked with, you know, zero, three-year-olds that much. And parents, frankly, don't necessarily love the message. You know, they they want, he's going to be two. People are starting to ask him, Mom, does he talk? And we get, you certainly understand that Mom wants him to talk and heaven knows we want him to talk, but Mm -hmm. you can't get him to talk any more than you can get that six- to nine-month-old baby to talk until right, all ready. the pieces of the puzzle are in place. So I think if she uses your literature, your writings, your book, your website, everything, your DVDs, and I know she's a fan or we wouldn't be discussing this question, but, but it, I, that has helped me a lot, talk to parents about really these mm-hmm. are the things that need to come into place 
first. And I think I, I'm much yeah. more comfortable having that conversation now than I was even a couple years ago, certainly more than, you know, five years ago. I would have right. kind of gritted my teeth and said, yeah, we'll work on signs and words. And I'd be thinking, oh, oh, it's going to be a long, long time. But, you know, yeah. some therapists really aren't even at that it's going to be a long, long time because I, I don't have this happen very much, thankfully, but every third or fourth conference I will have someone say to me during the break or say out loud or write on the sheet at the end, I can't work on social stuff or receptive stuff if the parent wants me to address talking. Uh-huh. And I always feel like, okay, I wish I had known exactly which person you were and where you were sitting because I would have shaken you physically <laughs> to say, listen, listen to me. Because the whole They were the ones sleeping through your conference, Laura. Because <laughs> texting, yeah, texting. Um, but to say if he's developmentally, and you just said it, when a kid is developmentally six to nine months old, we do not expect them to talk. We don't because we know that they're not cognitively and motorically and from a receptive language point they don't understand what words mean. So why in the world do we think they're ready to talk yet? You know, we're teaching them. We're playing patty cake. We're playing peekaboo. We're saying, Dada, where's Dada? It's Dada. We're doing all that. But sometimes when we keep flipping the months of the calendar, we we are fooled into thinking that they're chronological age because chronologically he's 20 months that we should be doing something different than we would from where he is developmentally. So that's just what I'm always a little bit frustrated with when I when I have a therapist who doesn't get it because I think, okay, this is not the first time you've heard this. Surely, as you're sitting here in this in this conference, but sometimes people don't. We don't think about what we really know. I mean, from a theoretical perspective, that's why we do an assessment is to figure out where a kid is developmentally. But then, like you said, you jump right into, well, the goal is talking, so let me just move ahead six months or 12 months on this developmental checklist here and forget about all those little minuses and those little, all those skills that he doesn't have yet. Let's just go straight to talking. And that is a huge, huge, huge mistake. And really what I say in the conference and what we've said here on the podcast before is that's wasting time. Because you're working on something he's not ready to do. That's like asking a kid who's three, because you can wear your shoes, you better learn how to tie your shoes. And he's just, he's not ready. We don't expect a three-year-old to know how to tie his shoes just because he can wear shoes. And so it's kind of like that. You know, you've got to look meet a kid where he is developmentally. And that's just an excellent point. I'm so glad that you brought that up. Because it is a missing piece for lots of therapists. And fortunately, I wish it were just new therapists. <laughs> But sometimes well, people sometimes sneak through. Think, yeah, sometimes I think some therapists know it, but they right. don't know how to share it. You know, they get right. that themselves. They understand it, and they know darn well, boy, we've got a tough road ahead of us. It's going to be a long time before this child's talking. And it, and right. I get, because I am sometimes the therapist sitting there looking at the mom who's getting teary-eyed because she wants Junior to talk. And it's right. hard to say, well, you know, <laughs> Yes, I totally understand that, and I do want him to talk. However, but I will say that. Go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, once you say it, once you share it, and you continue to make it something you discuss kind of on a regular basis and you revisit Mm -hmm. the topic, I think it helps. One good thing is parents then have much more realistic um, ideas and and goals for their child, and they then do see some successes because you've, brought right. it down to something that's obtainable in a short amount of time. And you're working on the right stuff. Yeah, right. and everybody's working on it. And then as a therapist, you don't feel like mom's patting her foot, you know, with her arms crossed. They're like, get on with it, lady. You're here to make him talk. Mm-hmm. And then she gets what you're doing and understands that whole thing. And when a parent starts talking about that and is kind of hyper-focused on the whole talk, 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 I really always say that's our long-term goal. <laughs> Mm-hmm. We've got a whole lot of ground to cover 
before we're there. You know, he and I use the example of the six to nine months discussion and say, you know, we don't think a six month old baby is ready to talk and that's where he is developmentally as far as communication goes. He might be walking and running and able to do other things from a motor perspective, but looking at where he is language wise, we have to start at the beginning. And parents do get that. I mean, they are most of the time sad because a lot right. of times you're the very first person that's told them that. Really they haven't thought about it, it in that them. way. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and mostly, ever, almost every parent thinks it's just a little case of like talking. I mean, sometimes you get parents who understand the enormity of a child's problem from the get-go, but many, many times they think, oh, he's just a late talker, and a few sessions with her, he's going to be talking fine. That's what the speech therapy thing is all about. And you're the first person to maybe say, we've got a pretty big issue going on here, and they, they haven't been able to hear it or process it or wanted to even think about that as a possibility before you brought they it really up. really haven't have been to have... told. I mean, a lot of times yeah. they really just haven't. <laughs> They look at a low score and they still see it as talking, you know, and it's like, right. mm, it's not just talking. Unless you really explain that, yeah. And mm-hmm. it is uncomfortable. The first uh, the first conversations as a therapist when you make yourself do it. I mean, and I say this in the conference and I think this all the time, you know, you're like a dream killer. Right. <laughs> you know, you're, you're sitting there and you kind of get, they first start to get the realization and you see the, the moms cry, and, you know, as that happens, you know, my voice is quivering, too. I'm as upset to deliver the messages. You know, it's not as, and I'm not minimizing their feelings at all, because I've been the mother on the other side of that table whose professionals are telling me about what's going on with my kid that's not developmentally typical. You know, so I understand that from a, a mom's perspective, too, but it's hard to deliver the message, and a lot of therapists sometimes wimp out on that because they they don't want to be the dream killer and they don't want to say or give really bad news. But I always follow that up with, but you are doing the very best thing that you can for him But you, because you called us. You have him in therapy. This is not a hopeless situation. And then you talk about neuroplasticity and all the great things we know about early intervention and that we change brains. And then you just kind of shift the focus to... We're going to get there, hopefully, but but we have a lot of other things to work on first. And then it really, it's realistic, like you said, for parents, and then they understand all the things that have to happen first, and they're not, again, thinking that you're going to wave the magic wand and he's going to be talking by the time they come out of the kitchen or wherever they were for two minutes while they disappear during your session. So I do think it's realistic, even though it's, it's a hard message for a lot of therapists to deliver. You have to make yourself just explain it in real words so that parents can understand while at the same time being very sympathetic and empathetic because it's a, it's a hard message to hear that your baby's not on track. All right. Yeah. Okay. I wanted to, um, in this last couple of minutes, give some resources for therapists that may not have a good um, sensory background, and lots of our uh, speech pathologists and developmental interventionists, we kind of joked about that last week. Kate, you said you got one in your master's degree for uh, your interdisciplinary early childhood education uh, degree that you got, what, about five years ago, six years ago? Mm -hmm. I don't know when you got your master's, that you had one kind of mom give a little talk about that, and that was the extent of your sensory education, your formal training. It really so was. Ther- yeah, lots of therapists come out of school and you have to you have to get this information on your own. So I'm going to give some good resources. I love the website sensory-processing-disorder.com because it has lots of checklists on there, lots of articles that are short so that you can read it and kind of think about it and digest it, things that you could copy for parents, and then more importantly, treatment strategies. But I think the most important thing is to help therapists who don't have a good sensory background recognize when, like this little guy, thinking, I mean, some therapists might think he just doesn't like me or he just, he's not, you know, responding for whatever reason 
rather than it's he's overwhelmed and it's he's overstimulated. So it's got some good checklist on there. Books that I love that are Wait, what great was it called resources again, Laura? for sensory dash processing dash disorder dot com. Okay. It's a great one. The books that I love, I still love Carol Cranowitz's book, The Out of Sync Child. And then she that was the very first book that I read about sensory stuff a long time ago to help me with my own sensory kid who is now almost 22. And I read it, though, when he was in early elementary school when it first came out. But great book, The Out of Sync Child. And, again, the author on that is Carol Stock Cranowitz. She has a brand-new book that I ordered today from Amazon.com called Growing an Insync Child, mm. and it's um, a, an activity book, so kind of a treatment book with things you can do to help um, our kids regulate and pull those little uh, sensory systems together so that they're ready to learn to talk and ready to learn to learn. So that was a great book. I can't wait to get that one. The other book that has become my favorite sensory resource is called Raising a Sensory Smart Child, and it's by an OT and a mom who wrote this together. The OT's name is Lindsay Beal, and I think I'm saying that correctly, B-I-E-L, and the mom's name is Nancy Pesky. That's probably pronounced P-E-S-K-E. How would you say that, Kate? Pesk? I don't know. That's not a name. That's not a last name I've. I'd probably say pesky, but it might be wrong. I don't know. I know. When I said it out loud, I thought, oh, I bet that's not it. But anyway, that's been my very favorite sensory book because it's so practical. It's written from kind of a daily routines perspective, like what do you do when a kid doesn't want his fingernails cut? What do you do about a kid who doesn't like taking a shower? What do you do for kids who? freak out when you try to eat in a restaurant. You know, it's really written in just a practical, functional, everyday um, kind of perspective. And, you know, I try to make all of my materials like that, so I loved it. It has just been my favorite book. So that's uh, that would be the number one thing that I would buy if I were a therapist and needed some help with really practical recommendations for parents. And then the other book that's more theory, and we talked about this probably a year or so ago on the show, is Sensational Kids by Lucy Jane Miller. And it is a book that um, it's written for parents and therapists, but it's a little heavier on the theory than uh, Raising a Sensory Smart Child. So those are the those are the resources that I would recommend. Teach Me to Play With You, which is my book about social games, also has a section in the back about addressing um, sensory processing issues that might look like bad behavior in therapy sessions or <laughs> quirky things that kids do during play. But when you boil it down, it really is a sensory processing issue. So that's a resource that um, therapists might want to take a look at, too. Any resources that you love, Kate, that I haven't mentioned for sensory stuff? No, I pretty much use the same one. So. Yeah. The other to. thing that I would recommend is, is befriending an OT. Boy, can't people teach you a lot when you're talking about a specific kid? Yeah. And it's not theory, it's real life when you're getting ideas about, you know, oh, what do I do for this kid? And so we had that therapist that we had on a couple of months ago that said she was a DI and her best friend was an OT, but they never talked about work. Mm-hmm. What else is there to talk about? <laughs> <laughs> That's been the basis for our friendship. So uh, obviously, you know, I, I we're good at talking about work. That's our thing. Yeah, <laughs> but befriend an OT because you can learn a lot just in in little five and ten minute telephone conversations about a specific kid. You know, and it is not a crime to call somebody and say, "I need help on this kid. He is crying the whole darn time. Tell me, what would you try? What would you do?" So uh, use your resources like that. Make friends with an o- with a chatty OT and get yourself to some classes, too. That would be another thing that I would recommend. But those those are all good resources, and I will uh, try to put those on TeachMeToTalk.com's Facebook page. I already have the new uh, Carol Cranowitz book linked on there, so check that out today on uh, TeachMeToTalk.com's Facebook page. All right, any parting words today? No. I did want to say this. I will, and I don't mean to be a oh negative 
um, voice, but I've even heard from some OTs over the years who say they didn't get that much sensory training in their OT programs. Yeah, so, um, unless I think a lot they of have a professor that really specializes in that. Be, yeah. yeah, really, really into it. I, they get some. They certainly get more than I got with my master's in early childhood education. But I think that the best OTs as far as working with young kids, they've gone far and above what they got in school because it's kind of a you know an evolving field and there's always new information right. and new strategies and it's so they they keep abreast of the latest stuff so um you know when you're choosing your OT and if you have a child with a lot of sensory issues go for the the local go-to person on sensory issues cuz they're not all um equal those OTs just as all other therapists are not equal so exactly. try to do your homework and find out who's really knowledgeable and who gets great results and great referrals and, you know, has that reputation because they all do it, but they don't all do it as well as one another. So just to exactly. clear homework on that, yeah. Exactly. That's a great recommendation. As always, breaking it down, keeping it real, aren't you? <laughs> well, <laughs> but perhaps a bit too real, but because no, I know. No, but it's just, true. Yeah. I mean, it's there are a, some who have been doing yeah. it for years, and really, really, that's their forte. second nature. Yeah. Right. And, it, you know, and then others who are, and for some kids, it's not critical that they be the best. But for kids who have real big sensory issues, that can kind of be a, a roadblock to, to, you know, progress in all areas of development. If their sensory systems are so atypical and such, uh, like the little guy the gal who wrote the letter obviously his sensory things are so huge is he is he uh, are his receptive language still skills typical well i seriously doubt it he can't he stand to hear somebody's voice i mean you know he right so yeah until they get those sensory things in check they really can't expect him to begin to make the kind of progress he might be capable of so for a kid who exactly. has a real big sensory issue it's real important that they get an ot who really really is well versed and not only knows the theory, but gets the implementation and strategies right for the family. Because even the best, greatest OT can, and just or other, I don't mean to single out OTs here. Any therapist, you know, we're, doesn't matter how good we are. Although that's really nice, we need to be able to help parents do what they can do. Because at the end of the day, we see them maybe an hour a week, and mom and dad are with them all, or you know, all the time. So they need to be the ones to know how to really do it. Exactly, because it's it's not going to get better just in your little session. Right. They've got to live with it 24-7. Right. That's good advice, too, as always. Okay, next week I have no plan for the show, so if you are a therapist or a mom listening and you have an issue you would like for Kate and uh, me to take a stab at, please email me at laura at teachmetotalk.com or leave a comment on the Facebook page or a comment on the website at teachmetotalk.com so that we can answer your questions. Or better yet, call. We would love to have a real live person call us. And I always give away a little prize um, to thank you for calling. So if there's a mom listening and thinking that she would like to take advantage of that, please do. We would love to hear from you uh, next week, Sunday night, 6 o'clock Eastern Time. Sounds great. Thanks, Laura. All right. Thank you. Talk to you later. Bye. Bye.